Welcome to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast, where we invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience, heal your heart while refining your character, and set you up to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. I'm your host, Karen McMahon, founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. My divorce brought me to my knees, and it also transformed me and set me on this path to help you. Our team of JBD coaches support men and women to engage in divorce with more calm, clarity, and confidence through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. There is an added level of stress sometimes when you do have a special needs child or children, as the case may be. Um, divorce is not easy. Custody cases are not easy on a family and certainly not on children. But when you do have that additional level of uh, treatment and medications sometimes and which home a child shall have treatment in, it just adds to the stress that people may feel. One of the things that I try to do is try to take out the legal strategy that people may want to utilize and think of the child. Welcome to the Divorce Roadmap series, comprised of 24 episodes designed to be your guide through each leg of the practical divorce journey. Be powerfully prepared as top experts in the field advise you on each logistical stage from the agonizing question of should I stay or should I go through the complex legal, financial, and parenting choices before you to your future plans for housing, budgeting, and co-parenting post-divorce. This is such an important show today, and I'm really excited about our guest as well. So we're talking about special needs children and really understanding and ensuring that your children receive uh, the vital and available support and how you go about doing that as you're negotiating divorce. So today, today's guest is one of my favorite divorce attorneys. Uh, Randy Carmel is a litigator in Manhattan, and she defies the negative stereotype of uncaring and out for themselves. Uh, I like to reference Randy as a rock star for her clients. She not only supports you uh, with her keen understanding of the law and fiery ability to fight if that's what's necessary, But she also stays in touch with her clients. She cares about them. She's very uh, responsive. And even long after the divorce is over, she keeps in touch to see how the family is doing. Randy uh, has been uh, awarded New York super lawyer for the last four years running. And she's recognized for her expertise with special needs children and domestic violence. And she's a certified law guardian, which means that she's um, she represents children and is often appointed by the court to do so. So, Randy, welcome. Thank you. And thank you for those kind words as well. When we talk about this, raising special needs children uh, provides a remarkable set of gifts for the parents and family. They also present a unique set of challenges. And when negotiating divorce, it's really essential that you can advocate for the support they'll need they'll need as you go forward as single parents. And Randy specializes in this area. And today she's going to discuss with us the pitfalls inherent and the possibilities available through the negotiation process. And she shares uh, both negotiation danger signs 
to be aware of, as well as she's going to share with us resources, organizations, and advocates that are available to assist you. And financial support for schooling um, and what you need to do to receive it. So I be ready to take notes because we've got a lot of really powerful information to share. Before we get started, Randy, can you um, share with our audience what fuels you to do what you do every day? I mean, God knows you're working with people um, at the most challenging time of their lives and, and typically not at their best. So so why do you do this? Well, that, that is correct. The people who come to me are often in some sort of distress or in even a crisis mode. Uh, although we do get people who in t- you know want to just get some information and uh, in time because they're considering uh, divorce, most of the people who come to us are already in a situation that is pretty bad at home. You know, I think I've always gravitated to an area of the law that was emotional. I like to make a difference, hopefully a positive one, in my clients' everyday lives. So if somebody can't buy a particular uh, piece of land, you know, that's one thing, and it may be devastating to them, but to me, it doesn't affect them every day as custody or having enough money to be able to support yourself or your child. Um, I like to make myself very available to my clients. Often I get calls. uh, Actually, I did today uh, for an emergency to be in court tomorrow. So I, I thrive on being able to assist and help and uh, make a difference in my clients' lives, and especially the ones that have children, because um, you know there are a lot of attorneys, and when the case is over, that's it, and uh, there's, there's no crit- critique of them. But there's you know some another case coming in. I like to make sure my clients know that well after their divorce or their custody case is over, uh, they can still call me. I'm still available to them, and. Uh, that you know it makes a di- if it makes a difference in their life it makes a difference in mine you know i love that about you and i think that uh, the field in general can just use more open hearted um, big hearted attorneys who understand that big picture because sometimes i think even the best intention uh, can fall into a business as usual uh, way of proceeding um, that that doesn't always serve the client the best yes and when, when clients do come to you they're they're people they're individuals they're not contracts um, and, and it's it's important I often have my clients come into my office for a discussion, although I'm available via email and and telephone. It is often best, and even if it's for a 15-minute meeting, which doesn't cost any more than if I were on the phone with the client, a face-to-face meeting, I believe you get more done, you get more um, insight, uh, you can see how a person reacts to things, even if they're not expressing it in words. So I often make time to meet with my clients rather than uh, having a telephone conference, even though I'm always available for that. Because again, I do believe that there is more than just the words on a piece of paper or the words on an email. Listening to a client or how they're communicating, sometimes I can tell more about their facial expression than I can from the actual words that they're using. So I do try to make myself available uh, to them Uh, for meetings and to have what I call just a very personal touch for a very personal situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. Going through a divorce, as we know, no matter what your situation is, is so uh, filled with uh, fear and anxiety and uncertainty. And as I mentioned earlier, when, when you're caring for special needs children and stepping into that being a single parent of a special needs child that that level of of uh, stress and concern and fear is just catapulted even higher and so 
just to give some framework to our show today, Randy, what would you say are the most important issues and areas that a divorcing couple with special needs children um, will need to address during the course of their divorce? Well, first of all, I think that you have stated it perfectly in the sense that there is an added level of stress sometimes when you do have a special needs child or children, as the case may be. Um, Divorce is not easy. Custody cases are not easy on a family and certainly not on children. But when you do have that additional level of uh, treatment and medications sometimes and which home a child should have treatment in, it just adds to the stress that people may feel. One of the things that I try to do is try to take out the legal strategy that people may want to utilize and think of the child. So I will give you an example. Some children, let's take autism, for example, a child may need to have the same toothbrush, the same space, the same time in which to brush his or her teeth. Now you have two homes. So I don't necessarily calling I don't necessarily call it a single parent because you could have two parents in two homes and How do you deal with the issue of a child who may not be able to function that well in two separate homes? And that is where there are exceptional challenges because you have parents who want to say, I am the primary caretaker or or, why can't my son or daughter have, you know, equal access with you know, with us and be able to sleep over the same amount of time or even not the same amount, but why can't the child sleep in my home on X days? And for strategy purposes, sometimes such as child support, they're not thinking of the best interest of the child. They're thinking of, I don't want to lose child support. Um, and, and that happens at times, whether you're male or female. So there, the, the added challenges, uh, I think, when it comes to special needs children are certainly only thinking of uh, the child in a way that uh, doesn't affect the legal strategy of maybe uh, getting support. The added, stra- the added excuse me, um, challenge is um, all the services a child may need. So there are sometimes occupational therapy, physical therapy. There are doctor's appointments that may be more than a a child who doesn't have special needs. Who's going to take the child? What are these services going to cost? Do we agree on those services? You have therapy, equipment, medications, supplements, dietary costs, sensory items, respite care at times, other professionals that may be involved, modification of the home environment. These are the added challenges that you don't have with every case, but you do have with a special needs child. And again, sometimes it's special needs children, which is, you know, another layer that we have to deal with. You know, I'm listening to all of this detail that you just laid out, and I want to stop for a second and ask you, for the people who are listening, who are probably nodding their head and going, oh my goodness, this woman absolutely gets it. I wasn't going to ask this question, but it seems so important now. How would you advise them in terms of finding a professional like yourself, a legal professional, they may be listening in from Australia or England or California. How do you suggest that they find um, a professional who can really be sensitive and understand the types of issues that you just laid out? You know, that is an excellent question. And there is no panel where uh, people can go and say, oh, this person will understand because this person is on a special panel. You had mentioned earlier law guardians. The the term that we now use is attorneys for the children. Um, So there is an attorney for the children panel. I'm certified to represent uh, children. And I would suggest that Anybody who has had that experience or 
is currently on the panel and gets assigned by the court to represent children probably has some experience with representing special needs children. I think that another area is uh, that to, to seek counsel, sometimes you can get a referral from, there are educational lawyers who handle special needs cases when the, when the city, and you had uh, touched upon this, when the city, and here we'll talk about New York, when uh, New York City public school system cannot accommodate a special needs child, there are often many private schools that Will the child could attend, but then the parents will be reimbursed. Reimbursed, excuse me, from the board of education. There are attorneys that help these parents navigate through that system uh, in order to make sure that the school, whether it's twenty thousand or fifty thousand or even a hundred thousand, gets uh, gets reimbursed. Those lawyers sometimes have relationships with. Um, matrimonial lawyers because they've worked with them and they know how they operate. Those are, that's another avenue, um, to, to, to pursue. And also therapists, occupational therapists, children's therapists. When I represent children, I often contact their therapists if they have them. I have spoken to them. I have actually sat in an office with the therapist and two parents at times for uh, a child who is very high risk. And we had a very long meeting. And the reason for that is we needed to talk about how we were all going to handle the current situation was at, which was at a crisis level by that kind of uh, effort the therapist and I got to know each other she knew how I worked I knew how she worked um, and that sort of helps you need people who you believe have the experience, but there is no list or panel. Um, you really have to maybe get references from uh, other professionals. And I would suggest that at a consultation or even on a phone call prior to a consultation, that a person who has these issues ask there's nothing wrong with asking a lawyer, what is your experience with special needs children? Do you have that experience? Have you represented them? Have you represented a parent? And even though a lot of children are now diagnosed as having some special needs, it's okay to say, was that an issue in your prior cases? Because sometimes it's not that much of an issue. Sometimes somebody is a special needs child and it gets resolved with everything else. There are other times where that becomes the main focus in an actual case. And it's not wrong to ask a lawyer, what is your experience? Has this been an issue? Right. So that's a, that's a great way to, to get some information. You've been listening to our podcast, Getting Educated, Regulating Your Emotional Reactions, and it's been really helpful, yet you know you could do better, be better, and you're wanting and needing more support. That's where our coaching service is a game changer. We're here for you when you need us the most, ensuring you have all the tools and resources at your fingertips, guiding and supporting you to be more effective. Our free rapid relief call helps you gain a broader perspective, commit to your best next steps, and determine what coaching support is right for you. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call today. And, and I think that 
again, the way you answered my first question, it just became so crystal clear how well you understand this this um, this group of people and the challenges that they face. And so if you're listening and you speak to a lawyer and you get a quick answer, dig a little bit and see if they can speak and really speak to what you're experiencing and what you're concerned about um, before you go and hire that person, because I could see how important that would be. It, it, it certainly is important. And I do agree with you 100 percent. Ask those questions, because, again, sometimes I don't think that there will be many lawyers who will say, no, I've never had a case where a child's with special needs. But the issue is, was that a focus of the litigation or the settlement? Was that an issue? Because if you come in and both parents say, you know what? Yes, our, our child has special needs. We agree on everything. And my child's going to get this service and, and, and we're going to pay for it this way. Then what real experience has that lawyer had? The experience comes from, sadly enough, the cases where there's conflict and the lawyer has to learn and the lawyer has to talk to the therapist, talk to the parents, talk to um, the child, uh, talk to the other lawyer. Um, clearly, if you represent the mother or the father, you're not going to speak to the other party. But when you represent and you have the, the luxury and the um, honor of representing the child, then you do get to speak to the parties and you get to hear um, how both of them are uh, view the services, whether it's about payment or whether it's about treatment. And there's certainly a lot of questions with, with treatments and newer treatments and where the treatment takes place and who's going to be in touch with the therapist. And is the therapist going to recommend X over Y and which doctor to go to? And should there be a neuropsych exam? And how much does insurance pay for that? These are all questions that are valid questions and should absolutely be explored at any consultation. So, so this is great. That that's so helpful. And um, for those of you listening, I hope you've been able to jot down some really good questions. And certainly make sure that if you're in the early stages, that uh, that you find someone who's a really good fit for you. And I think one of the important things is that. Uh, an attorney for the children, just like Randy, can also be an attorney for. Uh, in in divorce. And so that sounds, if I were, I, I love that piece of information. I think I would be like starting there because that person has such a um, broad view if they have the experience with special needs children. So, so what I'd like to do is, you know, one of the things you mentioned, because you just touched on so much so quickly, is finances. And I'm wondering how the, if you could speak to the financial needs and challenges in these types of divorces? Well, there are special services. So I had given a list a little while ago of some of the services that have to be taken into account. In New York, there's basic child support, which is supposed to go for room and board. But then there are add-ons. And add-ons are expenses that parents usually pay in a pro rata uh, manner for things like education, medical, tutors. These are all, some are discretionary and some are mandatory. Without going too much into New York law, because I believe your audience is, is far broader than that, I will focus on just the fact that there are additional expenses when you have a special needs child. So the list that I had read regarding therapies and care and medications, they can become quite costly. So the add-ons can sometimes make a parent feel as if they want to make the decisions. Because if one parent makes a final decision and then financially obligates the other party or the other parent, that parent may not have the money for it. So it, it really crosses and meshes with the idea of, of decision making. The Board of Ed, as I mentioned in, in New York, certainly has a 
uh, program that if the child goes to a school that where they it needs a school that the public system cannot accommodate, they will pay for um, that school. There is money that the the money that comes off the top is actually for the education lawyer. So you are always reimbursed the following year. So you'll always be approximately, at least this is the amount now, approximately $10,000 behind because they take that off the top of any money you got reimbursed. So the lawyer gets paid. And then the following year you get reimbursed and it goes till the time when your child is no longer in school. And then you finally get that final reimbursement, which will make you whole. But the add-ons for therapy, not all insurance covers everything. And these are quite expensive services at times. So you the parents sometimes have to fight for making it um, affordable. A lot of therapists are very kind and they will reduce their rates. But we then have to deal with sometimes insurance and not everybody has medical insurance. So it certainly is an added degree of stress and fighting about it is worse because it costs money to fight. And that, that that money that's really going to the lawyers are now is now something that is missing for the children. So it really is uh, an issue, um, very much linked to decision making. Yeah, I wonder if you can. There's so many different things that we can talk about. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to. Um, I was just going to ask about decision making, but I see how that's so interwoven with financial needs, and yet. Also on its own, I, I worked with one um, woman who had a special needs son. I think he was about 12 when we started working together. And dad hadn't been that involved. And so there was this just huge fear about him. And he, he, had, he, he was an autistic child, about him going to dad's apartment, about dad actually being able to um, take care and and the father actually seemed to really want to step up regardless of what he had done previously. How do you advise your clients when they're in that kind of a situation where their fear is, you know, to just protect the child um, and yet they may be making assumptions about what's going to happen in the future, right, out of fear that isn't necessarily so? Like, how do, how do people begin to navigate who makes the decisions and how often um, uh, each parent can can be with and care for that child. Well, that's those are all actually very good questions. They're they're excellent questions. First of all, there is a theory that when people go through a divorce, that they become better parents because people who were no longer who who never got, went to doctor's appointments all of a sudden start going. People who had a division of labor. Um, that it was in the traditional way where one parent was home, the other was working. All of a sudden, that parent may now have to, the one who was home may now have to go out and get a job. And the other parent now wants to stay, uh, you know, no longer wants to stay late at work, but wants to be with a child um, or children. So the dynamic changes dramatically in many cases. And that is what is incredibly difficult for some people to handle. It's usually the person who is the custodial parent, not the custodial parent, more of the primary caretaker, that parent has usually has more difficulty accepting the fact that they're not going to be with their child every day, that the child is now going to be somewhere else for part of the time. And um, that all those efforts, although great and are valued, still doesn't make it that they're going to be with their child every single day. So that is one of the most difficult parts of what I do is actually trying to prepare a client for walking into court, perhaps, or getting a settlement proposal from the other side that all of a sudden asks for more time than the parent had ever had before. And this is extraordinarily common and extraordinarily stressful uh, for the, the parents. Decision-making is also very, very stressful. So let me start with the easiest or at least the first step 
not every parent wants to admit that they are or acknowledge that they have a special needs child. So there are certain diagnoses that are very clear that a child maybe can't speak, is not on the spectrum, but has autism, let's say, and I'm just bringing that up as an example. And then there are children who are a little bit on the spectrum, not really, um, you know, uh, as intense as some of the, the other children and one parent doesn't believe that that child needs special services or medication. And that has nothing to do with money. There is a true belief that the kid will somehow, with maybe a little tutoring or a little extra help in school, be able to get past this. That is a very difficult position to be in because you have two parents who have very deep beliefs and a child who is not diagnosed as as something that is almost irrefutable. And then there are the problems. And the problems are treatment, money for treatment. Why can't my kid go to this place school rather than that school? Why can't I have the child 50% of the time? My kid doesn't have a problem, you know, brushing his or her teeth in my bathroom. I don't understand this. And I don't think the tutoring is necessary. And I don't think the speech therapist is necessary. The teacher said the speech will eventually get better. Why do we need that tutoring? So that's at the very basic level. A problem if you have two parents who disagree that a child has special needs. And going for things like a neuropsych exam, which is thousands of dollars, even getting that exam done is a problem in some families. So that is one aspect of it. And that's probably the most challenging. When you get to a level where they both acknowledge that there is a, a somewhat of a, a um, special needs situation, then they have to really agree on the treatment and where it's going to be and payment. If they can agree, you're going to have, as we always say, a stranger in black robes making up uh, making a decision on which parent should have final decision-making on a child's medical care. I find that to be very scary, even if you trust the judge, because it's still a third party saying one person. If you can't agree and you can't communicate, one person will make that decision, and the judge will have to rule on which parent that will be. And sometimes it helps when you have an attorney representing the child, because then that attorney weighs in. And sometimes you need a forensic report, which is a report by a psychiatrist or a psychologist who meets the family and who meets any um, third parties that that person wants, including, or that each party may want, including collaterals such as school teachers, the principal, therapists, um, medical doctors, they get, they gather all the information that they need and then they write a report that is uh, focused on the child, the family, the strengths, the weaknesses of each parent. And it helps the judge sometimes decide who's going to make that final decision. But it's a very daunting situation to think that if you don't cooperate, you may be the one to not make a final decision regarding your own child's care. I, I'd love to jump in right here because this is this is something that um, I've experienced so many times with different clients. And I think it's it's really good timing to just say, it, you know, it's it's so normal and understandable to be triggered, to be in that deep fear, to be like holding on for dear life because this is this is your baby. This is who you're worried about and who you want to make sure gets all the right care. And sometimes what happens is because of the emotional um, stress that a parent is under, they come across looking like the unreasonable one, the reactive one, the, the, the crazy one. And I've worked with so many clients to help them 
to take a step back and to breathe and to give some space to the situation so that they can be level-headed and responsive, whether it's with their attorney, with the forensic psychologist, with the judge, because when you go in there all fired up and anxious, you end up presenting in a way that's not who you really are. And it actually can do you, do you and your child a disservice. And so I think it's so important that if what Randy is talking about right now speaks to your situation and if you find yourself like white knuckling it and fighting and getting really emotionally upset and reactive, that that's the kind of support where um, a therapist or a divorce coach like me and my team can really help you to get clear and to communicate your your worries and your needs and your desires from a place where people can hear you, all those professionals can hear you. your friends and loved ones deeply care about you. But if you're honest, while they mean well, when it comes to your divorce, they just don't get it. And sometimes you leave those conversations feeling even more isolated. If you're lonely and craving connection and support, check out our high conflict divorce support group, where an intimate group of 12 people gather from the comfort of their homes to hear, see, and encourage each other while our JBD team of coaches provide emotional support and practical guidance. There's no reason to take this journey alone. If you've been yearning for support, go to journeybeyonddivorce.com backslash HCDSG and register today. You know, you said so much that is right on point. I love that you use the word reactive. As you are saying that, I was writing it down because I love that word because it is exactly what happens in our cases. And you know I have said this to you in the past. I often feel that a divorce coach and your team, you know, I always say it could be the glue that holds a case together. And there are situations where people do react and the judge will view them based on one thing that happened in court as that's who that person is, not realizing or forgetting the stress that that person may be under and why that person reacted the way he or she did. So you are a hundred percent correct. And let me just add another level to this. It's not just what a judge sees. It's also what their own lawyer sees. There are times when a client, because they feel like that they can, and I'm not criticizing anybody, will yell or react to a lawyer who is maybe not being as sensitive or maybe just telling them what they don't want to hear. And their reaction makes it so it's difficult for the attorney and that client to communicate. And then there's a breakdown in that relationship. So what you do is not just for the, what I call the third party professionals, the forensic, maybe the attorney for the children. What you do also has a tremendous impact on the relationship between the client and the lawyer. Now that does not mean that the client can't express him or herself, or that the client can't get angry at the lawyer, or the client can't cry in front of the lawyer. That's certainly not what I'm saying. But and and there are times where there are arguments or there are heated discussions, which are okay. Sometimes the only reason why you have that is because the lawyer cares just as much as the parent, and they're getting riled up. But I I think that your work is is far deeper than those third parties. I think it also helps with the conversations with a lawyer. And that that means something because you don't want your lawyer to go into court thinking my client's unreasonable or my client can't control 
a, a temper. You want that lawyer to walk into court and know who their client really is and why they react. So I, I think what you said is is quite important, and especially um, also dealing with forensics and people who are there with all due respect to them. They're there to judge. They're judging what kind of parent you are. They're judging what kind of decisions you have made in the past. It is like being under a microscope 24-7. I have had people complain about things that you wouldn't even bat an eyelash over, but a parent complained um, because I'll, I'll give you an example. I once received a call at a ridiculous hour uh, and a message because a parent did not fix a zipper on a coat that a child had and it was winter. So I had represented the children and I thought, okay, I get it. It's freezing outside. I don't understand why the parent didn't do this. The one parent called hysterical. I called the other parent because I had permission to talk to both parents outside the presence of their lawyers. And the parents said, you know what, Randy, you are right. I did not fix that zipper because I bought my daughter a new coat. And here I was thinking that something was so horrible. That was a lesson I learned very early in my career, very, very early. And it's important to note that, yes, people get reactive and you are correct. But when you really get to know the parties or really get to know why somebody acts the way they do, it, it certainly does um, help the situation. And again, my goal is always to try to come to some common ground, even on something minor, because that may go a long way to something that is major. And I, and I think that I, I, I think that one of the key things for our listeners to realize is, you know, we, we understand that the stress and the pressure and the tension that you're under, and yet we each choose how effective and communicative we're going to be. And oftentimes going through a divorce, you need some extra support to do that. But no matter how difficult your situation is and no matter how difficult your soon-to-be ex is, you're fully responsible for your behavior. And so you can get the support that allows you to be an effective partner with your attorney and and sets you up to to uh, negotiate and design the best possible settlement for you and your child. And, and I really encourage you to reach out for that support if this speaks to um, you and your challenges with being reactive. Um, I have two last questions that I'm going to ask that I hope offer a broad sweep of uh, suggestions. Randy, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners a success story uh, where, because everyone listening, you know, they don't know what's around the corner. There's uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. So can you share a story where maybe there seemed to be some challenges in the beginning and it just, it, it worked out so well for everybody and why? Yes, and I'm going to actually, with your permission, I will be quick, but I'm going to share two stories because they're so different. And I think that with both stories, it will affect, uh, it will impact on probably your very broad audience. So the first story I have is when I represented a child, I represented children, and one of the children had a disease that um, I think it was, if I recall correctly, maybe one out of every 10, I'm not, I, I'm sorry, 10 or 20 children have it in the entire United States. So it was extraordinarily rare. And it was a case and it was a brain disorder. And one parent wanted one kind of treatment and the other parent wanted a different kind of treatment. Child was hospitalized. One parent acted as if, oops, I'm sorry, but I've tripped over the cord. So the test couldn't, the neuro test couldn't have been done uh, because it now became unplugged. These parents were not working together. This child was in the middle of conflict and had a brain disorder. It was one of the saddest cases I have ever had. And I remember getting all the records, the med uh, medical records. It, it almost reached 
you know, to, to my shoulders. They were so high if they were stacked one on top of each other. At the end of the day, after all this litigation, remember, they each had a lawyer. They each had strong positions. And in the middle was this child with this disease that was very difficult to to deal with for the parents as well as the, the child. I engaged the child, um, which was wonderful because I believe that I, I gained the trust of this child. But most importantly, I gained the trust of both parents and I contacted the lawyers and I made them, hopefully, I, I don't want to say made like I forced, but I suggested, strongly suggested, that they not litigate the issue of making medical decisions um, where one parent would make severe decisions according to the other, because this was such a rare instance and there was very few people you can go to for for help or, or for support on this particular issue, that they go for mediation. Now, we were litigating at the time. I got appointed by the court. That's how attorneys for the children get appointed. And we, they, the judge took my recommendation and so did the parents and the parties. And they wound up mediating certain issues regarding medical care for the child. And at the end of all of this, and it took a while, I cannot say that it happened overnight, but not being in a judicial setting and mediating that issue, they wound up working out an agreement between them with the help of the mediator that wound up being an agreement that got part of an overall agreement and that portion of the case settled. The financial portion did not settle, if I recall correctly, and I wasn't involved in that. But this was a way that they were able to communicate with a third party and knowing that they can go back to this party, this person, this mediator, was comforting, I think, for both because it let them each express their views. And the child wound up getting the services that were necessary. And years later, I still get cards uh, from the parents. So that, that to me was a success story. And very briefly, where I have another one where it was a um, an, an autistic child. And the parents also didn't get along. The other lawyer who I want to give credit to, the other lawyer decided to research and work hard to learn all about autism and the services that are necessary. And I must always give him credit for doing that because he had the knowledge when we all met at a four-way meeting, it didn't feel legal anymore. It felt like we were all talking just about this child in a capacity that was non-litigious, even though we were in court and there were forensics and there was you know, a lot of litigation. That lawyer wound up learning so much that the conversations with his client were easier because they stopped being legal about decision making and really just focused on the child. And that also led us to a settlement which was very beneficial to the child. And again, I only know that because many years later, I'm still in contact with my own client. And I always ask how the child is doing. And despite some issues, they have never had to go back on the issue of decision making or treatment for the child. You know, I'm hearing that when you keep um, the child uh, front and center, which probably sounds a whole lot simpler than it is sometimes. And when calmer heads prevail, not just the, not just mom and dad, but the attorneys as well. And when both or all professionals are educated in the needs of special needs children, that uh, that's a formula that allows for a lot more success. Yes. And I, I just want to be very clear that neither the other lawyer nor myself acted as if we know more or acted like a, a doctor or somebody who's in the profession profession of treating these children. Nobody acted that way because that actually could be offensive when 
a lawyer comes in and thinks that they're the doctor. It was really just a matter of knowing what certain words meant, knowing what it meant that somebody was on the spectrum, knowing what an IEP is, which is, you know, an exam and an extra help that a child may get in school. Knowing these terms and not having to look them up helped the conversation because we became part of what they were going through rather than the person who they have to explain everything to. Because once you have to explain as a, as a person going through a divorce, you start to sound litigious. You want to make your point. And knowing or talking to the doctors or allowing us to really get involved and read the records really was a credit to both of those parents at one point, but um, it certainly helped. And again, even though we were in court meeting, sitting in a room, trying to work it out, not thinking about who's going to get some sort of a legal edge on it, really uh, did in fact help. Awesome. Great, great stories, Randy. So, so the last one I want to ask you is um, if you have, uh, how do I want to say this? Lessons learned from a challenging case, maybe one that was on the precipice of going bad uh, and, and the types of things like to really hone in on the types of things that allowed it to shift and, and work out for the, the children and the whole family. Well, the worst, I, I would say one of the most difficult uh, things that at least I have had to deal with are clients who don't want to accept what you have to say about the system or their view. That is a huge challenge for a lawyer to have somebody say to a parent who has been the primary caretaker, things are going to be different now, or I know you've been at every therapy session, but now your your spouse wants half of the therapy in his or her home and you're not going to be there. And, a, you know, it's unlikely that a judge will say that can happen um, unless a medical professional says it's bad for the child. Th- that becomes increasingly difficult for either side. Uh, to deal with. And that's where a lot of the fighting, for lack of a better word, um, occurs. And that's where I do feel at times that I may lose that client's, I don't want to say confidence, but a bond that we may have had, because now I'm telling that that client is paying me and I am telling them that their position may be unreasonable. That is what you should be paying for is somebody who's telling you the truth or telling you that if you take that position in court, that may have such a negative impact on your case and your child, therefore, that we really need to talk about what you can consent to or how you can look like you are cooperating and not making every decision. So, yeah, there have been cases that have fallen apart because what the advice that the lawyer gave was not being followed or the client simply just could not get past what happened in the past and couldn't move forward. And the lawyer was not, not that this is necessary, his or her job, but wasn't able to have that person move forward. I have been in that situation. I have been in a case where I told the client clearly, if you pursue this avenue, you are going to wind up in a tremendous litigation. And based on everything that I know, you may wind up losing what you already have now in an agreement because that was a post-judgment matter. I absolutely have been in that situation. And I will always say that I would rather be honest with a client, even though the client may not like what I have to say, than sugarcoat something and have them have a disastrous result. Right. And I'm just going to put this in my words, because what you're saying uh, comes up so often in divorce in general. And because the stakes are so much higher, I can hear um, the impact it has. And so you're discussing resistance. You're discussing somebody resisting what is that as the professional, you're saying this is what's realistic in terms of what's going to happen. And they can't seem to step out of their locked in position and into acceptance. And I'm just going to take a minute. We talk about this in a lot of our podcasts 
when you can step into acceptance, I don't like it. It's not what I want. But the minute you step into acceptance, the options available and and Randy, correct me if I'm wrong, the dialogue that you can then have with your attorney or the other professionals opens up when you're in resistance, you're closing every door. And then the judge sees that or the forensic person or someone else sees that. And it's like you're in a room with all closed doors. There's no place to go. So if you find yourself in resistance, that there's something you don't want, there's information you refuse to receive and accept, um, that's a place to get some support and to really work with someone who can help you to get unlodged so that you can see choices that are available to you. Would you agree with that, Randy? I would agree wholeheartedly, um, 100%. I also, there's another area where I think that it, it pays to, to, to bring up that sometimes the lawyer is also closed off and isn't expressing what he or she really wants to. And when a client tells, let's say, a divorce coach, this is what my lawyer said. I believe that there are times when lawyers can be, including myself, maybe too harsh or not saying it in a way that is the way we should say it. And I think that that also, sometimes the lawyers get closed off and think that there's maybe only one way to deal with something. So it's interesting, the clients who I have worked with, and obviously one that you have actually worked with as well, when she would say things one way, I would take it that way. When she would say things another way after working with you, I would understand more of what she meant because there was some sort of um, a difference in the way I would say that that person spoke, which made it easier for me to understand. And I know that you had actually helped as well um, with her to understand what I was really saying. So I think it goes deeper as well. Yeah, I think that and it's a good point, because when you've got that that, you know, as a divorce coach where this total neutral, we have no agenda other than to help our client get clear on what they want and see where they may be setting up roadblocks for themselves or really moving forward. And so a lot of times we do help with communicating and a client might be afraid to challenge their attorney and we we will work with them through that. It's like you have an intuitive hit that your attorney um, isn't seeing something that you think is important. Let's talk about how you can communicate that from a calm, clear place and see if you can't open up some more possibility. And so I, and yes, we've had, we've had uh, a client that we shared with, there was so much of that that happened that allowed for so much forward, positive forward movement that it was, it was really exciting to work um, in partnership with you on that, Randy. Well, I, I believe that you had so much to do with the result in that case. Um, and again, yes, this is another client I'm in contact with. Um, but it is very important because much of what I said was taken, what w- was interpreted very differently than how I meant it. And I think that you aided in that situation, which made things go a lot smoother. So yeah, I think that it, there's definitely uh, the closed door versus open door concept and what possibilities are out there. And as I always say, trying to find some common ground. You cannot do that if you're shut off. So we've covered so much territory. Let me ask you this. Uh, Do you have any final words of advice before we just tell our listeners how they can find you? Yes, absolutely. I, I think that what you have said was actually quite important in terms of how to, to look for a lawyer or how to look for professionals that can help. Years ago, there was never a team approach to things. And now I believe there is a team approach to how to work with a client. And I think that that is very important when you're dealing with special needs children, um, because again, I believe that the stress level is is different or maybe higher Um, There is certainly some statistics about what it can do to a marriage as well. So I think my final words are to whatever professional you are working with, to really research hard 
and, and uh, about that professional, the background, the experience, and that it's okay to seek additional help, not just an attorney, but possibly an education lawyer, possibly um, a, a divorce coach or um, working with mediators or therapists. There's nothing wrong with having a group approach to how to handle things. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with admitting that you may not be conveying what you want to convey and services that are necessary and why they are necessary and to do as much research as possible so you're prepared to protect your child or your children uh, so that child gets as much services as, as necessary without fighting and payment of those services. That's the ultimate goal. Absolutely. Brandy, how can our listeners find you? How can they reach out to you if they're interested in uh, finding out more about your services? I will give you uh, my email address, which is very simple. It is randy, R-A-N-D-I, at randycarmel.com. No space, no punctuation, R-A-N-D-I. K-A-R-M-E-L.com. My website is randycarmel.com. And my phone number is 212-755-0224. Randy, this has been such an incredible education for me. And I hope that everybody listening just received so much value from it. I want to thank you for coming on with us today and sharing all of your experience and wisdom. Well, thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. And I hope that people understand that what you do for a living helps all of us with what we do for a living. And it certainly is uh, an open door uh, way of handling what could be a very, very difficult situation. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.